lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Scheller and on this week's podcast you get not one but two Aussie accents as this week I'm interviewing an Australian horseman named Lockie Phillips. Lockie was born in Melbourne and ended up becoming a professional ballet dancer and was a ballet dancer in Europe for quite some time. And then post-ballet uh, dancing, he started training horses. And Lockie's story is pretty fascinating, including some of the mentors he's had that helped him look at the world a little bit differently, uh, especially one of them named Dr. Paulette Mifsud. And she was Australia's premier positive sports performance psychologist. And she kind of worked with athletes, artists, and Olympians in performance careers ranging from track and field, pro dancers like Lockie, and musicians, students, and even equestrians. Lockie brings the sensitivity of the ballet dancer. The he spent a lot of time looking into emotions, uh, especially emotions in animals and not just humans, as well as uh, mindset from his his uh, mentor, Doctor Paulette. So, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Lockie as much as I did. He has a, a fascinating story and a truly wonderful human being. Lucky Phillips, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. This, this is going to be fun. Um, so where are you right now? You live in Spain, but where are you right now? So I live in Spain and I'm in a small village um, in the south of Spain uh, between the mountains and the sea uh, where I could find some good internet enough to make contact with you. And you said you're, uh, you're staying there because your, your mum was over for Christmas? Mum's been visiting for Christmas and, um, yeah, I had an opportunity to use the good internet because we live about an hour, an hour's drive away from here in a really, really remote location with very patchy internet at this time of year. So 
being someone who works mostly online, uh, that presents its challenges. But um, all I can say is that that's going to be a, a short-term solution because we'll be moving soon. But um, I took advantage of this this rental and the fiber internet and um, managed to get you in. I have to come here to uh, upload like all my major videos and stuff, and I'm about to release my next online course. So I've been coming here to like upload stuff. I mean, what I have to go through just to deliver services to people, you would never know how much of a struggle it is. My clients tell me it looks very seamless, but behind the scenes, it's it's like spinning plates. It's been really, really tough, but um, yeah, it's it's okay. I've managed so far. Awesome. So I want to dig into uh, the whole story behind Lockie Phillips. So boy from Melbourne, Australia, ends up being a professional dancer in Europe somewhere and now trains horses in Spain. Walk us through that. So where were you, where were you born? Yeah, it's quite a story. And can I just say, um, I am shocked and awed that I'm sitting here in front of you doing this recording. I'm shocked and awed because people like me, in my experience, don't tend to be in places like this with people like yourself. And so, um, yeah, I'm a little bit in shock. So if it takes me a while to warm up today, please forgive me. Uh, but I promise I'll get there. Um, okay, well, let's just, let's just back up a second. Um, let's, let's unpack people like you ending up in places with people like me. Let's start <laughs> out with people like you. What are, what are, who are people like you? What is, what, what are you, how are you describing yourself when you say people like people you? like me? Well, what you see is what you get with me. I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty obvious and clear with who I am all the time, but I'm not born into a horsey family. I'm not even born into a family that lives in the countryside. Um, I was born on the other side of the world to where I'm living now into a totally different environment to what I'm living now. And um, I wasn't born into any kind of network at my fingertips like some people can. Some people are born into horsey families. I don't know that much about you, but Warwick, you're someone with a sort of a mainstream following. And I couldn't be further out of left field than if I tried, at least that's how I see myself. But um, I've, I've never been the person who's ever had a seat at the table, ever, in my whole life. I've been denied a seat at the table, whatever table it was, whatever table it was, I was denied a seat at that table. And so for you to extend an invitation for me to sit at your table today is like, it's a first for me. And that's like a really scary thing anytime you get those life firsts because it's a sign from the universe that change is coming and change is scary and change is confronting. And I've been dragged kicking and screaming into more changes than I would have liked to have been in my life. Um, and I've, again, just surrendering to that change. But, yeah, I, people like me don't tend to end up in places like this. I've been banging on about woo-woo stuff down the down the rabbit hole for years and years and years before it was popular and just dealing with nothing but retribution for it. And then, like what I said when I visited you at your house, and it was really important to me to thank you because you documenting your journey from professional sportsman, performance horse person down your rabbit hole and documenting that journey and taking your community with you has, in my opinion, brought credibility, um, 
and visibility to people like myself who are off in the bushes somewhere trying to trying to figure something out with their horses in a different way. And so, yeah, what can I say? The world's changing and I'm, it's really exciting to kind of watch that, but it's really scary at the same time too, I think. You know, you mentioned being in our kitchen. So, you know, you had popped up on social media maybe in the last couple of years or something or other. And the bits that I had seen, like, oh, I love what this guy's talking about. And then you were going to be in the area and another Australian horseman. I thought, oh, have you swing by and say good day? And my wife, Robin, was, I think she's in town shopping when you showed up. And so we were at the, at the kitchen counter chatting away and she comes in with the groceries and sits them down. So she goes around the other, she's on the other side of the counter and she sits them down. She starts putting stuff away and you were talking and I saw her just stop what she was doing and pause and her mouth opened very slightly and you were in the middle of some long diatribe about something or other talking to me basically always and 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 her mouth just opened and she just stood there for quite a while and listened to what you had to say and so when you after you'd left she said to me you got to have that guy on the podcast. <laughs> like the, some of the stuff you're saying was pretty darn cool, you know. Well, and like I said, she she came in and just her jaw dropped. Well, thanks, Robin. Uh, thank Robin for me. But your casual invitation um, is, in from my experience, extending a great kindness, and I'm quite humble before that. I'm always banging on about some diatribe or another, and half the time it's just my mother listening. So um, I'm amazed and surprised anyone listens to me at all but um i posted today about it like um 2022 is the first year in my life that i've worked uh full-time self-employed i've been self-employed for six years but 2022 is the first year where i didn't work for anybody else at all i've always been self-employed representing someone else's work or uh, doing self-employment on the side of doing someone else's full-time job as well. And so 2022, I took the plunge and said, that's it. I'm not working for anyone else anymore. I'm just going to do me. And I was, you know, really, really scared and uh, giving it a go anyway and trying to be, you know, uh, true to myself. And the year kind of proved me wrong. It was it was a pretty good year, <laughs> pretty, pretty wild year. It was pretty good. But, um, yeah. You know, you know it's funny. At, at the start of this, you, before we pressed, before I pressed record, I said, you got any questions? And you said something like, no, I'm going to. Uh, surrender. That wasn't really. I'm going to surrender to whatever, surrender to whatever happens here. And it sounds like you surrendered to 2022 as well. I did. I did. I really just surrendered to it. And, and my whole life has been that way, just kind of having a dream, having a passion, having an idea and following it and following it, even though I'm frightened of it, even though it's intimidating, even though it takes me to strange and scary places, I will just go there anyway and surrender myself to it because it's not about me. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the thing I'm surrendering to and allowing that to come through me in a sense and it was the same in my dance career I was never interested about aesthetics maybe I should have been more interested about aesthetics in my dance career I was never interested about fame or promotions or positions or casting or any of anything like that and the same rule extends in this career I really don't care about that what I care about is being of service to the the thing that I've chosen to do 
my life in and with and letting that speak through me. And um, a lot of the people that come to me or quote unquote, for want of a better term, the community that I represent, which is small, but I have a small community, a lot of them feel like they have this inner voice and they are constantly suffocating themselves from expressing it. And not only themselves, but the world around them encourages them to continue to suppress it. And so I know what that feels like. And I know that that's a pretty wretched place to live your life. And people live their whole lives in that place. And so I try to not be that, to be an example for those people so that maybe they can follow behind me and and also find their voice in something. And um, yeah, self-empowerment and self-agency is sort of something that's on the forefront of my mind lately. It sort of came up at the clinics last year in September. Uh, coming up with the subject of personal agency over and over again at these clinics and in diff- many different forms. And so um, having the agency to surrender to yourself and get over yourself too. you got to get over yourself sometimes. <laughs> like being able to reach a point where I could say, what I'm doing with horses is a method. It's a method. It is a method because there are a lot of my colleagues, bless them, I love them, who will say, oh, I don't have a method. Oh, no, 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 I'm uncomfortable with identifying with the idea that I have a method because maybe I come across as predatory or uh, marketing too hard or something. And everyone's got a method, even if you're not aware of it. But I had to get over myself and over the idea of trying to control how other people thought of me and just said, well, what I am doing is a method because client after client after client I've produce the same sort of process with them and so that's a method and that that was a pretty hard realization it's the same realization I had kind of 10 years ago when I realized that what I had to offer in the dance career was nothing compared to what I might have to offer in the horse career and that was a really painful realization because I kind of sacrificed everything to be a dancer and then to get up that into that position and then to realize oh shit, there's this other thing over there that life's kind of telling me to go in that direction and it's not even adjacent to what I'm doing now, at least at a superficial level to people around me. It's going to look like Lockie's had a nervous breakdown and he's lost all touch with reality. But in my heart, I knew that they were absolutely the same thing. And so that was a really painful realisation. I had to surrender to that. I had to let go to that and just say, okay, well, I guess I'm, I'm going this way now. We see what happens. So to circle back to your first question, how does a guy from Melbourne, Australia, become a professional dancer and then end up in Spain training horses and being an equestrian coach? I mean, how long have you got? I mean, I need to write a book about it, but, yeah. Well, tell us, tell us, about, uh, tell us about your childhood. Like, when did you, what were you into? What did, when did you get into dance? And how did you get into dance? Well, I was into dance and horses when I was a little boy. That was it. Horses primarily, but if you're living in uh, suburban Australia, suburban Melbourne, you don't tend to have horses around you, though horses were on my brain all the time. I was introduced to horses by a uh, a family member who lived in Kilmore in Melbourne uh, in Victoria, and she had horses. And so I knew of horses since since a child. But when I was five years old, this is the story. When I was five years old, 
mum was in the living room and I was in the living room with her. And she was, it was the 90s, right? It was 1995. So she's on an exercise trampoline with hand weights. Did you, say, did you say when you were five years old? Yes, when I was five years old. Was in, was in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, am I, that am just, I making that's you just feel weird. like... That's just, yeah, that's <laughs> just weird to me. I was married, I was married in 95. Yeah, I was, I was basically <laughs> just out of diapers in 1995. So um, I, I, I hope that doesn't blow your mind too much. But anyway, it does a bit. so it was 1995. Mum's on like a neon, like bouncy trampoline in the living room working out for something on the television. And I'm dancing along with her. I'm just like a five-year-old free as a bird bouncing around the living room. And mum says, oh, you're a good dancer, Lockie, like as all good mothers would to their, to their children. They would just encourage them. And I said, really? She went, yeah. And, of course, me being me, I just took that way too far. And I said, can I do dancing lessons? And she went, sure. And I was like, great. She's like, go ask your father. Dad's in the, in the bedroom having an afternoon nap. I wake him up. Dad, 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 can I do dancing lessons? And he went, what? I said, can I do dancing lessons? He was like, yeah, okay, six months later warwick i'm asking them when am i starting my dancing lessons five years old i mean like five going on 35 really and now i'm 35 i feel like i'm going on 140 but that's another conversation so um my parents didn't really know what to do with me i really came out of left field for them um dad tells this story he says when i was four three or four years old i was drawing And he said, I did this drawing of, I don't remember this. He said, I did a drawing of a woman standing in the rain, three, four years old. And he said, I'd captured some sort of emotional pathos in this drawing at that age. And he just was really terrified of me. It's sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid. He's got something, I don't know where it comes from. And so um, we got really lucky. Mum and dad took me down to the local dance school, um, and they said, we've got this kid. He wants to do dancing lessons. We don't know what to do with him. And um, the principal of the school, she's 50 years in the business, had lots of boys in her school. She said, don't worry, love. We know exactly what to do with him. You bring him here every Saturday and he'll be just fine. And so that's what they did. They took me there every Saturday. And then Saturdays became Saturdays and Wednesdays, Saturdays, Wednesdays, Thursday. And it just started to snowball from there. And as I got older, sort of the horse aspect sort of got squeezed out by, by dance and then realised I had an aptitude for it, I had the body for it, um, and then wound up at a full-time dance school in Melbourne and then I got a position at a dance academy in Switzerland because there's two and a half jobs going in Australia every year if you're a dancer, like good jobs. So I realised if I wanted mm. to be a dancer, I'd had to leave my country that's the story over and over again with Australians. You know, we all leave our country to find opportunity elsewhere. There's just not enough employment for different kind of industry. How old were you when you went to Switzerland? I was 18. I was 17 when I got the the position at the school and I just turned 18, went to the school, didn't know anyone in Europe, no family members, no friends, nothing. I had an acceptance email from the school and that was it. And, um, which which part of Switzerland the the French speaking or the German speaking German the- speaking German speaking so I lived in Zurich for two years, and I graduated with a Swiss diploma of stage dance. Um, then I went from there to a small company in Eastern Germany where I danced for a year, sort of south of Berlin, and then I got a job at the Polish National Ballet Company in Warsaw, which was I was the first Australian to get a position there. They have the the largest opera house in in Europe. It's immense. 
and I was there for seven years. And um, as soon as I got to Poland, horses just reached up out of the waters and swallowed me whole in my spare time. And then I was sort of doing horses and dance at the same time for a long time. Then I sort of made the transition. I just decided to get out while I was still alive. You know, I imagine a lot of my listeners are familiar with horses, so <clears throat> we'll get to horses. But when when you say you were a dance, you know, in this Polish dance company for seven years and you did horses in your spare time, what does spare time look like profe- for a professional? We we can I say you're a professional ballet dancer? Or yes, you're a professional dancer. Yes, you can say professional, professional ballet dancer. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine your training schedule is pretty amazing so what's 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 you know you said you uh did the horses in your spare time what's spare time look like for a professional ballet dancer um that really depends because uh there were seasons to it you know there were times when you'd be really really busy and then there were times when you wouldn't be especially when you're a young person in the company and you had just joined there'd be times when you'd be run off your feet and there were times when you had a lot of time in your hands but also remember I'm not living at home with my family. I'm in Eastern Europe on the other side of the world. No friends, no family. I have an apartment and a job and that is all. And I very quickly realized that I couldn't spend the rest of my professional life planning my out of work hours around visits to the supermarket. Because once you get a job, especially in an ex-communist country where they make sure everyone's kind of got their personal lives, um, you have time on your hands. And I realized, oh, I need to I need to do something with this time. I can't just sit around waiting for the next rehearsal. I need to do something with my time. So I was in my 20s, ages sort of 20 through 29, when I was sort of in that country. I was not manic, but I didn't stop. It was like there were periods. I mean, let me describe to you what one day looked like. Got up at 5.30 drove half an hour outside the city to a stable where someone had hired me to exercise her ex-police horse. So I did that because it was close to Christmas and she had no time. And I was like, well, I don't have time either, but I'll make time. And so I went out there, paid nothing, and I was exercising her ex-police horse in minus five degrees. I'd come home, get changed, go to the theatre. I do training at the theatre and then rehearsals till for five or six hours. And then in the afternoon, I'd have a five-hour break And then I'd go again to another stable, do a lesson or see my horse, or I'd be studying or something like this or reading, constantly reading. Then I'd come back to the theater. I'd have a performance in the evening from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. And then in the bus on the way home or in the car on the way home, I'm listening to a podcast or I'm reading a book about horses all the time. And when I wasn't dancing, I'd be sitting there in the studio reading books about horses or running my business on my phone or my laptop whilst rehearsals are going on. I mean, multitasking doesn't really come close to it. It was a little bit silly, like how how far I pushed myself. But if you're a dancer, the career is really, really short anyway. And so from the first year, you have to start thinking about your exit strategy. And so um, I did, and I took that really seriously. I took that really seriously. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Yeah. Do dancers make good money? Like, no. you know, dancers, so, that, so you got, you're not... You're not like, oh, my dance career is over, I can retire now. Oh, oh, absolutely not. Maybe the the top of the top of the top, out of a 1,000 dancers, maybe one or two 
or less would be earning middle-class wages. I can be really clear with you, in Poland at least, I was living on under 10,000 USD a, uh, a year. A year, Warwick, a year. And so you are in chains to this job because my immigration status was uh, <clears throat> pertaining to uh, keeping this job, and yet I didn't have the money to be able to get out so what I had to do was then become self-employed while I was working and work just double time to earn enough money to be able to get out of the out of that career. But no, the money was not fierce. It was pretty pretty diabolical. Is there tell me, is there money in the in the industry and the you know, the people that make the money, do they realize that you guys are in this because you love it, so you're not in it for the money, so they don't give you any money? You know, like mm. people buying tickets to go to watch the ballet, you know, all that. Is there a lot of money that goes to the people other than the ballet dancers? Got to remember, I was in Poland. This is an ex-communist country. I was sort of the first mm. generation of adults. This is going back 10 years ago. I was the first generation of adults that was able to enter Poland after they had had enjoyed 20 years of freedom from sort of communist rule. And so the whole idea from that is sort of everyone stay down in the quagmire together. No one be better than anyone else. And um, that was at every level, financial, social, cultural, emotional. That was at every single level it permeated the culture there. Now, in Australia or in America, Dance companies can only exist if they do make profit. And half the time, it's wealthy donors who keep the, the companies afloat. Um, some companies get government funding. Germany, for example, the money is quite good because it's all funded for by the government. You're actually taken care for by the government. But I was essentially a government employee in Poland, and we were surrounded by luxury, sur surrounded by wealth. And they had a huge budget every year. They just didn't care. I don't know. I don't know why they didn't pay us better. Because um, there were a couple of dancers in the company that made okay money, but the rest of us were struggling. And most people either had dual income households, or they had grandma's apartment that they could live in for free, or they lived far outside of the city, or they struggled. I mean, there were some times when um, at the end of the month, I was sort of scraping together food, like it was, it was pretty, pretty rough, like waiting for my paycheck to come through to go buy food. It was pretty rough. I was pretty skinny. I mean, I'm skinny now, and this is the heaviest I've ever been in my life. So um, it was pretty, pretty hard, pretty hard. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting, you, you know, like you're the first Australian to make it there. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of at the top of the, you're kind of at the top of the game sort of thing. And you're telling me that you're at the top of the game and, and starving at the same time. Yeah, but that's a story played over and over again in almost every industry, isn't it? You know, as a general rule, we're not really that good to each other yet. That's kind of how the human brain works. Uh, I mean, there are some exceptions, maybe yourself included, but um, I was never a famous dancer and that was never my goal. But yeah, I did reach, I went further with that career than even my teachers thought I could go. And so, and I work with some of the people in the industry. Like, imagine if you were an actor and Steven Spielberg work, walks into the room to train you. These are the sorts of people I got to work with, and yet we're paid nothing. And even when we had the dance version of Steven Spielberg come in, they would make us come in on our day off unpaid for the privilege of doing it. Um, 
And I point blank, blank refused to do that. I said, no, um, I'd love to work with this person, but that's my day off. I need to rest. And you're kind of manipulating us to have this experience so that our performances look better and you don't want to pay us to do it. So you're kind of taking advantage of his fame and gravitas to kind of draw us all in unpaid. And we were pretty exploited, pretty exploited as a general rule. You know, you just said like, it's any industry that does that. I remember I had a guy at a clinic oh, almost 10 years ago now, probably in Florida, and he had been to college on a golf scholarship. Mm. He was an accountant, I think. He'd been to college on a golf scholarship and apparently he was a very good golfer. And I said, so were you, were you good enough to play in the PGA? And he goes, actually, I was. I was good enough to be the last guy on the PGA Tour which might, means I'd spend about 300000 a year making 100000 a year. Mm -hmm. While everybody, you know, trying to keep up with everybody else who's making $10 million a year. Yeah. And, you know, there's that, there's, that, there's that line when you are good enough to be in the upper, you know, the, the swimming with the big fish sort of thing, but you're the smallest fish in the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's and I think every everything has that. Yeah, it, it was it was really sad as well, and also because what I was doing it wasn't a sport where there were um, really clear, um, uh, really clear scorecards for who ran fa faster, who hit the ball further. You could have ten people sitting next to each other, like looking at a painting, and this person has that opinion, and that person has that opinion. There's also a lot of like cultural bias. So a lot of the Polish dancers were sort of pushed in places that they really shouldn't have because they were trying to make sure they were fostering Polish talent. So just by being a foreigner, I was already working. You had to work twice as hard to get half as far. And like I watched um, uh, some brown-skinned colleagues of mine really struggle having to be twice as good to get half as far as everybody else. And I guess that kind of circles back to what I said to you straight off the bat in our talk today is that people like me don't get in front of people like you. I've always had to work twice as hard to get half as far as everybody else. <laughs> I'm still laughing at the people like me. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe you're not aware of, uh, of what you represent to some people out there, Warwick, but... I'll be, I'll quite happily tell you, you represent like a beacon of hope and light for so many people. And, um, I've never been around people like that, um, who have looked at me in the eye, like an equal, it's just never happened for me. And so that's an entirely new experience. And it's like wearing daddy's big shoes that don't fit you yet. Got to grow into them kind of awkward, but, um, the whole industry was like that. Like I remember the only time. I got explicit compliments from my boss in the ballet company was when I did a performance that I felt the worst about. I felt like it was absolutely the worst I had ever danced in my life. It was the only performance I'd have actually fallen on the stage, but I was cast in sort of a soloist role and they came up and congratulated me and said it was really good. And I said, are you all nuts? Didn't I do better work like on a Tuesday morning in the morning warm up than I did on the stage. And you're telling me that was good. And my colleague next to me said, if they compliment you, never ever speak back and say that you don't agree with them. And I realized, oh my God, the emperor has no clothes. They can just decide to like you and decide not to for absolutely no reason. So it's not about being good enough. 
sometimes. Really confusing. It's really confusing because you're surrounded by narcissistic people all the time who can just make decisions, you know, like Julius Caesar, thumb up, thumb down kind of kind of vibe. And that's a it's a pretty um it's a pretty interesting place to spend your 20s. What can I say? So if if Robin's jaw was sort of dropping at your kitchen table, it's only because I've kind of been in some strange positions in my life. And that that expands regions of your brain, I guess, that typically don't wouldn't get expanded than if I had stayed close to home, if you get my drift. Yeah, it was more some of the stuff you're talking about, and I'll 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 get into what you were talking about when Robin was listening to you later on. But tell me, how does your how does a 20-year-old psyche survive the um, – well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm getting at here is, is as I delve into stuff and look at things differently and whatever, you know, you start to – I start to realise how much a lot of things I've done, I've done for external validation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think it comes down to not – me not thinking much of me and having to have somebody else validate me for me to feel enough, so to speak. Um, and how does, like, it's, it sounds like, you know, in like in, say, the, the ballet company, you know, there's a lot of, and not just that, I suppose every walk in life has it, but, but I imagine they're probably pretty highly critical all the time it's not you know it's like they don't hand out compliments very well but they certainly tell you what you're doing wrong a lot how does how'd you handle that did you did like did you have a lot of or put it this way did you have a lot of confidence in your ability and you were like pretty sure of your ability and who you were or did you need to have someone pat your back and tell you you're doing a good job i didn't do this on my own i survived because other people helped me get there this was not an individual race that I ran. When I was 17 um, at the Victorian College of the Art Secondary School in Melbourne, very progressive school, they had performance psychology classes. Like at a normal high school, you go to math class. We went to performance psychology classes, to career planning classes, music theory classes. And running this class was, I didn't know it at the time, Australia's number one sports performance psychologist, Dr. Paulette Mifsud. She worked at the AIS and the VIS and Olympic athletes. She worked with equestrians. She worked with uh, the Australian Ballet Company. She worked with musicians. Anyone in a high-performance field knew this woman and would uh, get her help. And so she was teaching performance psychology classes, and I took it as an opportunity to kind of nap because I thought, okay, yeah, great. Meditation, what? All right, okay. Um, uh, concentration, profiling, heart, I'm exhausted. I'll just nap through this class. And then one day she was doing concentration profiling on us and she just sidled on up to me and she just pinned me in a corner. She just said, do you struggle with this, 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 and this? And I said, yeah. I was like, get out of my head, lady. She was like, I can help you. And so 17 years old, before social media had destroyed all of our attention spans, I met with this per- this angel who took me under her wing and changed the way my brain worked so that I could improve in my career and have resilience to what was going to be a really, really tough decade because we know that it's going to be a hard career going into it. They train us for it. And um, 
my grades jumped like a full grade in like six weeks or something after doing her her coaching and then we became friends and then she was training me up to be like a business partner and she was going to qualify me and um she died when I was 26 she got cancer and she 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 didn't make it um but before she passed away she asked me to kind of take up the flag for her so I always mention her in almost every podcast interview I've done so far because she's really like she's an angel sitting on my shoulder she was just so I got through all of those experiences because I would reach out to her and say I'm going through this what the do I do what do I do how do I survive this? Because I don't have a friend or a family member who's gone before me, like me, that I can look up to and follow. I'm really in unknown territory here and I need your help. So she literally gave me psychological resiliency and uh, um, different mindfulness techniques that I would employ to survive this sort of um, environment, incredibly hostile environment but if you look at it just at a superficial level everything looks glamorous and uh polite and nice and what i found is sometimes the glamorous polite and nice environments hide some of the the worst cause ugly hostile brutal to the core and um i've been there i've come back out and i can put my hand to god and say that yep it's a pretty hostile industry that's pretty sick inside out. It's got a lot of work to do. Well, that kind of answers my question as to how you, how your psyche survived that whole thing. So tell me more about this mentor of yours. What was that thing? Concentration what? Con concentration profiling. Tell me all about that. So um, I had, she died, quote unquote, diagnosed me with overload external stimuli, OES. I would get overloaded by external stimuli. And she gave me very, very specific exercises I would do. Uh, I would do them in her office and then I would do them at home before I'd go to bed and when I'd wake up. And it actually restructured the way my brain processed information and the way I concentrated. And you actually, it's like a whole test that she did and she would graph you and the graph should have like an ideal curve to it. And if you're off the curve, then there are certain prescribed techniques she would use to get you back on that curve. And it was really, really specific. There was very much a science to it. And I think somewhere in my papers, I've still got those original papers from her, Like I'll never throw them out. Um, so concentration profiling was really good. She used to make guided meditations for me um, and it was all positive sports performance psychology. Right off the bat, she said, most psychology is about what's wrong with you. She's like, I start with what's right with you and how do we capitalize on your strengths? You can be aware of your weaknesses, notice them, don't engage with them, but engage with your strengths. And so she would also do VIS uh, character studies on us, like strength uh, character studies on us, which is Values in Action Institute, the VIA Institute. Um, it's like a collection of philosophers, psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever. They did like, I think, 12 years of research across history, across time, across culture, multiple different religions and thought practices. And they came up with a short list of, I think, 22 or 24 human values or strengths that are, that are consistent across time and across culture. And then they've got this free online test that you can do that, that scores you what's your one to 24 and your top 10 tend to stay true for you for life, but your top 
three are your most prominent at any one time. And depending upon life's challenges, you'll oscillate between your top 10. They'll step up to the plate and step into first position or second position for you. And I've still got the results that I did 15 years ago with Paulette, because once you've done the test once, you keep they keep all the results for you and you can go back every six months and see where are my strengths at right now. I mean, some of the work I had to do, especially when I was in Switzerland, because Switzerland was a really toxic environment at school, some of the work we did was it was really intensive, sort of like not just throwing me like a life raft, but like literally just making sure I kept my head above water while I was still at school mentally. My school in Switzerland, I can actually say this, uh, my school in Switzerland is currently under an investigation for allegations of child abuse. And um, three months ago, I gave like a two-day, eight-hour deposition to a law firm in Zurich about giving witness to the abuses that I saw at my school in Switzerland. Um, it was supposed to be a three-hour interview, turned into an eight because I have a really good memory. Um and so I became their worst nightmare <laughs> in the end. And I said, I've got a good memory because while I was at school, I was working with this woman who was making sure that my brain wasn't shutting down while I was in this toxic, abusive environment. And those, those teachers who taught us and that abused us, they'll never teach again. Um, they will never be able to be in front of children again. But these were the people who taught me how to, to dance professionally. And the, the shadow and imprint that that leaves in your body memory is um, profound and takes a lot of introspection and a lot of um, resilience and personal focus to extricate yourself from that pain body and let it go. I'm still in process. I'm doing a lot better than what I was a year ago. What can I say? Well, that's, um, that's good to hear. So it sounds like, you know, because when you were here in the kitchen and talking to, talking to me and Robin was listening to some of the stuff you were talking about, it, it sounds like, uh, what was your mentor's name? Uh, Do- Pauline? Dr. Paulette Mifsud. Paulette. Yeah, Paulette. Um, sounds like she kind of prepared you not only for the dance world but for the horse world too. 100%. She prepares you for any world. She prepares you to be the best right. best version of yourself. And so one of the most powerful things I learned through her was that the it or the itch that I had that dance was scratching wasn't about dance. The it that I have in me that I was applying to dance, the talent, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't about dance. That belonged to me. It didn't belong to what I was doing. It belonged to me. And you can apply it to anything you turn your mind to. And I wanted to turn my mind to horses because I love them. I'm in love with horses. So I just applied it, detached it from dance and applied it to horses. But my time in dance wasn't a waste of time. It's come very in handy with horses too. But, um, yeah, because a lot of people will say to me, even today I was fielding questions of this nature, do you think your time in dance helped you with X with horses? And I said, well, no, not really. I would have figured that out anyway because it wasn't dance that gave me that. I sort of had it before, I think. I mean, most five-year-olds don't walk into their parents' bedroom and demand dance lessons, you know. I don't know where that came from. No dancers? Your dad wasn't a dancer? 
No. And um, I'd never been to a ballet. I specifically asked for ballet classes. I'd never been to a ballet class. I'd never seen it on television. If people asked me when I was a kid what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said I wanted to be a jockey because I wanted to be around horses. And it was the only job I knew of that involved horses. And mum said, oh, you'll be too tall, right? Um, and so I don't know where it came from. It was like a bolt of lightning out of blue sky, the concept of being a dancer. And I knew what ballet was. I had a vision of it in my head. At five years old, I remember sitting in bed and imagining what it looked like. And I'd never seen it before. I didn't see my first dance performance on stage until I was 12. So I have not, to this day, it's a mystery. I don't know where it came from. Don't know where it came from. But I surrendered to it. <laughs> it sounds like you did. Um, when you were here visiting, like I said, I talked about Robin's mouth being open, and you were talking about um, Dr. Yuck Panksep. Yeah. And emotions and you told me about a book which i have the book it's a pretty heavy old book what's that book called effective neuroscience effective neuroscience so this guy was on about emotions not only in humans but in animals too wasn't he yeah yeah he was the, he is the 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 cornerstone of how we understand emotions in animals from a scientific perspective well, you know, it's interesting. I'm reading a book right now that I can't think of the name of. I haven't mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, I will look it up right now just so I can. Okay, it's called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by a fellow named Carl Safina. Have you ever heard of that before? No, but there's a guy called Franz Deval who is also a well-known animal scientist that explores emotions in animals, and he talks about this author quite a lot in his other works. So I think the, the scientists who play with emotions in animals, they all tend to talk to each other. Nice. Well, this book's interesting because he talks a lot about how in the scientific community, for the longest time, you've not allowed, you've not been allowed to talk about the fact that animals have emotions because then right. you're anthropomorphizing and then right. you're blah, 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 blah. And there's, there's so much really cool stuff in here, but there's one thing he says, you know, they said to him something like, um, but you can't, you can't project human emotions onto animals. Mm -hmm. And he's, and then his reply is something like, yeah, but you have to remember, a human is an animal. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, I think that's mm -hmm. what the scientists forget, that, that humans, mm -hmm. humans are animals and we are part mm -hmm. of the whole thing. We're not mm -hmm. separate, separate from it. So tell us what you know about mm -hmm. Jock Panksepp, if, he, if he's a scientist who looks into animal emotions, because that's not, I don't think that's standard procedure in the scientific community. No, and it's important to note that there's no scientific consensus over emotions, and thank God that there's not, right? Because um, well, there's still a lot of room for discovery and a lot of room for debate. But Yak Panksepp, Estonian neuroscientist, I think he died 2017. His work is peer-reviewed, so it's pretty pretty well accepted. Not everyone agrees agrees with him. But what he did was he actually gained empirical data for something which is inherently non-empirical, meaning he actually measured emotions in the brain. He mapped them in the brain. He put these sensors on rats on their skulls and then he'd play with them and he would 
notice which parts of the brain of the limbic system where emotions are processed, which parts would light up. And he did this many, many times. He did all these experiments on animals and he found the regions of the brain which dealt with different emotional systems. And he, through trial and error, as all science is, he came up with a short list of seven subcategories of emotions where, where all emotional states tend to spring from. And he called them the primary emotional systems or the blue ribbon emotional systems. And there's four positive, quote unquote positive, and three negative, quote unquote negative. That's not a value judgment. It's just uh, about physiological states. So he's really exciting because Scientists haven't studied emotion because they think it's something that you feel and you can't see, touch, and measure. Yak Pangsev actually did measure it. And his work shows us that everything we know, just about everything we know about emotions in human beings at a scientific level, has come from animal experiments because it's unethical to study fear in a human being, but they'll do it to a monkey, they'll do it to a beagle. They'll do it to a bird, right? So what we know about human emotions at a neurological level, we've actually learned from animal experiments. So the very whole concept of emotions and anthropomorphism, and we should be scared of anthropomorphism, is so without a base because what we know about human emotions at a neurological level comes from primarily animal experiments. And why are we not talking about this stuff, right? And so Yak Peng said his, um, his primary emotional systems, they are play, rage, lust, uh, seeking, panic, fear, and care. These are the systems. And there are some interchangeable terminologies, but these are the terms that tend to come up when someone's aware of Panksep's work. They will use these terms to describe uh, general categories of emotional states. And what can also happen is that these emotional states don't happen like a switch one at a time. It's like a, it's like a DJ switchboard. They dial up and dial down and they can come in together and blend with each other. And they don't happen in a vacuum they trigger off higher thought functioning and processing and decision-making, and they also trigger the nervous system, which is much deeper and lower in the brain. So it integrates. And there's even recent studies, and I mean really recent, within the last 12 months come out that shows that bees, honeybees, play for no reason. Bees show care and nurturance and altruistic behavior. They're starting to gather data about emotions in insects that we're starting to discover that animals, living creatures, aren't just automatons, biological automatons that just have these predetermined instinctive responses and that are sort of dumb creatures with predetermined instinctive responses that can be controlled just through external conditioning, that they have these biological systems inside of them which predetermine behavior, behavior that can spontaneously erupt out of nowhere from an effective experience. And effective means internal. So effective neuroscience basically means internal neuroscience, right? Because it's about the internal experience rather than external experience. And so that's a really exciting place to be. And it's really the, the wild, wild west of um, animal training is the emotional aspect because so many people behaviorists included are really worried about going into that territory for fear of being deemed as anthropomorphic but what we've learned is that all mammals human beings included 
have the same seven primary emotional systems in the brain. We have exactly the same systems. So fear in us is exactly the same as fear in a horse, as fear in a rat, as in a blue whale, as in, and now we're starting to see perhaps also insects, birds, especially crows, corvids, show incredible uh, intelligence, emotional intelligence. We need to have like a whole rethink on emotions as a biological system because what we're typically told and what is the story over and over again in the horse training world, leave your emotions at the door. You need to be, or at the gate, you need to be emotionally neutral when you ride. Don't let them, they can smell your fear. Don't let them know what you're feeling. Uh, don't be emotional, right? Like as a pejorative. And um, I think it's all trash, really. We can just sort of put that in the bin, kind of rebuild that concept and let's be a little bit more thoughtful about exactly the function of emotions with horses. It's a really exciting subject to me. You know, for quite a while now, yeah. <clears throat> clinics and stuff, I've been talking about, you know, we're always told not to anthropomorphize, I said, but I think in the process of doing that, we forget to mammalize. We forget mm. to understand that they're a mammal, we're a mammal, the nervous right. system works the same. And right. I think sometimes in, the, you know, like, so, you know, anthropomorphizing is basically projecting humans' emotions and thoughts onto mm. a non-human whether it's a sentient being or it's a chair. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I caution people to, to don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't think 100%. because you're not anthropomorphizing doesn't mean you can't mammalize. And, and I think a lot of what people accuse others of as anthropomorphizing is just mammalizing. It's just saying that that, mammal is experiencing this thing and i also experience that thing but it's not a human thing that you are you know you're not projecting a human emotion onto them and you 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 are you are um identifying a mammalian uh response not a not you're a human empathy. response you're having empathy basically anthropomorphism in my experience more often than not is a term used to frighten sensitive horse people away from being empathetic towards their horses, period. <clears throat> so that a trainer can continue to uphold some sort of training approach which um, takes away from the horse an aspect of their dignity, an aspect of their self-preservation, an aspect of empathy away from the training. Oh, don't be anthropomorphic. They can't feel it. They're just, you know, and so we need to get away from that really, really quickly. And we, most people talk about emotions and thoughts and they don't actually know what they mean at all. We need to know the difference between thoughts and feelings. To me, from my experiences, my research, thoughts happen in the prefrontal cortex. It's in the, the human brain, the abstract brain, as it's sort of casually referred to by neuroscientists, the abstract brain, prefrontal cortex, it's 4 million years old. From an evolution perspective, it's really immature. It's kind of like a baby in a diaper. It's still pooping its pants. It's still got a lot of malfunctions. It's not very well integrated with the rest of the brain, but it's a very large part of our brain. It's a very recent adaptation and the abstract brain can construct these abstract realities, which have absolutely nothing to do with 
the real tangible truth that's in front of us. And walk into any barn in the world and you'll just see the abstract brain on like overdrive. It's just like people telling these stories about their horses and the horse is standing there just going, just waiting for the truth. And people are just stuck in this storyline that has nothing to do with what's really happening. It's not feelings that get in our way. It's our thoughts that get in our way. It's these abstract decisions that we make and these, these agreements. It's the emperor's new clothes, which is my favorite parable, emperor's new clothes, right? And um, it's feelings that really, as a biological function, drive us towards truth, not thoughts, Thoughts help us to build an iPhone and fly to the moon and do all of that kind of stuff. It doesn't help us relate to another living creature, at least not at an emotional level. We can get there intellectually. But if you've ever gotten two highly, highly educated intellectual people in a room and let them talk, it's like they can talk the sky into being purple because they decided to be so. And they often do. And it has nothing to do with reality whatsoever. And it's just, it's wild out there. It's wild, you know. I was having this discussion on my Facebook group today. A lady was asking for for help, and I tested her to make sure that she would trust what I had to say. And she was just writing this long story about all the thoughts she had about her horse. And she said, but she kept coming up against his sour attitude and ears back and aggressive and bucking and all this stuff. I said, I can see you're really thoughtful about your horse, but can you feel him? I know you can think about him. I know you, you're very thoughtful, but have you ever felt him? Because it's your thoughts getting in your way, not your feelings. But we're told that it's our feelings. We're gaslit and told that it's our feelings that get in our way. You know? It's funny. The human brain, man, it's a weird place to be, huh? I mean, I wake up in the morning and I already feel like I'm on mushrooms. Truly, truly. I wake up in the morning and I'm already having an existential experience. Every day, Warwick, I, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. I find being alive so weird in a human world. I just find it so weird. And then I go down to the horses and I'm just like, ah, oh, here we are. This is the truth. This is real now. You get around people and it's just like you all at, well, you're in your minds, not out of your minds. You're in your minds, and that's the problem. No one's in their body anymore. You know, we're neck down dead. The body is just this meat vessel. We're like walking meatloaves to take our prefrontal cortex to more meetings. And, um, and that's how we're educated too. You know, well, it's not you know, that's, that's what I was going to say was, you know, we've, you've mentioned horses quite a bit so far today, and, you know, the podcast is not really about horses. It's, you know, a lot of times the people who are on here have had experience with horses and, you know, it's the, the, the views that they have in the world sometimes are shaped by horses. But right there, you just hit the nail on the head. That I, The thing that excites me a lot is the coming to the understanding that the society, that the culture that we have grown up in has separated our head mm. from our body. You know, at oh. the at the um, the Journey on Podcast Summit in San Antonio here, probably a couple of months ago now, you know, we had each of the presenters did what we called a TikTok, which is like a TED talk, but it was teach, inspire, connect. And then we had some mm. panel dis we had some panel discussions and had different people up for these panel discussions. And one of the panels was on was on intuition. 
And the question was asked basically about how do you how do you go about finding your intuition? And Jane Pike, our good friend from New Zealand, <laughs> took hold of the microphone and basically said, you shouldn't have to find intuition. You are intuition. And the reason we don't have intuition is because of society, because of capitalism and colonialization and ya, de ya, de. And she went off and it was bloody amazing. And everyone just. Everyone just fell off their chairs. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. The whole, <laughs> it, was, it was one amazing moment out of a three oh, amazing oh, days. Yeah. But it was, you know, it's all about that. Like I've been in my head all my life and I'm just starting to get wow. into my body now. And it's a pretty amazing place to be really. Um, yeah. Ha- having, that, having that communication from your body to you and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, but yeah, what you just said right then, like, you know, a society is basically cut the, you know, if you think back far enough back to what was 1600s or something, Descartes said, you know, I think therefore I am, you know, like, like the, the head is separate from the body. As long as I'm thinking, then I'm, I'm and they complete, used, you know. they used to behead people too, as a punishment, as the ultimate punishment, they would take away your head from your body, you know? which is a bit grim to mention, but it's kind of an interesting kind of symbolism there about the direction our brain has been going for centuries, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the thing I'm excited about. Like all things, all things um, that are about getting us back to our body, into our, into our bodies, um, you know, I've been doing ice baths for about three years. My wife has really got into the ice baths in the last six or eight months, I guess. You know, things like that, experiential things that that you know that get you get you back in your back in your body. That those are the things that fascinate me. And 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 also what you're talking about too was like when you're talking about animal emotions. Well, really, the the getting back in your body. A part of that is is getting back in connection with the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you were talking about even even insects have have emotions. Have you ever read the book The Secret Life of Trees? No. Because they it talks about also... Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. 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 If it's if it's alive, it it's it's a it's sentient. Something. Yeah. If it's yeah. alive, it's a sentient being. Like you can you can take a plant, um, there's the plant that when you touch them, they, they close. You ever yeah, seen those yeah, little yeah. things? Venus, they, Venus flytrap. Well, it's now it's a very smaller version of a Venus flytrap, but they will take these plants and they will drop them off a second story window, you know, drop them out of a window, but they catch them at the bottom. And as they fall, the plant goes, oh shit, and clamps shut. Okay. Mm. Right. And then they repeat it. And after about three or four times, when you drop them, the plant knows you're going to catch it. And it doesn't clamp shut. Yeah. You know, wow. things, things like that, things like that are the, are the things that Blow just, yeah, that just absolutely fascinate me these days. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, and this is all stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm all into shamanism and all sorts of stuff like that these days. But this is, this is earth knowledge. This is mm. indigenous wisdom. This is stuff that, before we before we spoke. started growing before before, before we started 
well, that too. But before we started growing more food than we could eat, back when we were hunter-gatherers, mm. we had this connection to the earth and all the animals in a way we don't anymore. Mm. And, I th- and I think... You know, I think that's one of the things that horse, why horses are good for people is because horses demand that we are that. They demand yeah, the, it. The, the, I mean, if you want to get along well with horses, you, you have, have to be, to be in, in touch. Place. Yeah, you have to be in touch with the natural world. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like being a farmer or whatever. You know, like you you can't mm-hmm. make the seasons hurry up. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You you have mm-hmm. to you have to be in touch with. The seasons, unless, of course, you know, you get really industrial and you, you know, you have greenhouses and whatever. But I'm talking about yeah. just, you know, basically how the how, how nature works. You know, I think that it's just re, re-naturalizing us, rewilding yeah. us. You say that you, you, um, you've always been in your head your whole life and you're only recently coming into your body. And we talked about that a little bit you're in your house as well. You, you talked about the physiological, the somatic feeling was very interesting to me. But prior to going down the rabbit hole, have you ever been in a social environment and someone walked into the room and the whole temperature of the room just shifted? Or have you ever walked into a room and just felt like something had happened in that room with the people who were there? They were all acting normal, looking at you saying, oh, hi, how are you? Good morning. You know, But you could just feel that the vibe was off. In the room have you ever had that sort of experience i hadn't until you know, wow. the last few years it's because wow. it's interesting so... it's interesting think about this when you're at school okay i've talked about this before in the podcast but so i've basically had no bodily sensations because i've i've shut them i've shut them down i've dissociated Whoa. from my body okay I've, I've i've had I've had heartbreak and being in love in my chest and I've had fear and dread in the pit of my stomach and absolutely nothing else, nothing in the, nothing in the solar plexus, nothing moving around. So do you remember the class at school? Because we both went to school in Australia. Remember the class you had when you're in you know, primary school when the teacher says, okay, if you're a fully functioning human being, you should have this energy in your, in your torso and it should move around and move up and down and get bigger and sometimes it hurts and sometimes it feels joyful. And you remember that class? I never had that class. But we didn't have that class. That. We didn't no, have no that way. class, did we? So what I'm saying no. is if you don't have that going on, no one tells you you're missing out. No one tells no. you you should have that going on. I went to dance classes. What do you think we were doing at dance classes? I didn't do that at primary school, but I did that on the weekends at dance school. No, but what I'm saying is you were looking at me like, how did you, get, how did you end up not knowing about that stuff? Because no one tells you you should have it. No, I totally understand why that's been your experience. I get that. I get that. I don't live in Australia anymore for a reason. Let me (laughs) tell you. Let me tell you. Do you think as a young queer kid growing up in the suburbs of Australia that it was a good time for me? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As a queer kid who felt their body and was learning to dance and express themselves and be creative, was Australia a good place for me? Hell to the no. Hell to the no. So I got out of there as soon as I could, 18 years old on the plane to Singapore, and I looked at the screen in front of me and I went, I got out just in time. That was the feeling at 18 years old. I, I got out just in time. And so 
I get why that's been your experience, but the reason why that shocks and awes me is because there are hundreds of thousands of people like you, Warwick, who are like this and who have never realized that that might be a problem for them. And I feel for them. I feel for them that there are people going through their world, going through the world detached from their bodies and it's not their fault they've been trained to be that way it is easier to be exploited if you don't feel what's happening to you if you're not conscious and aware of how you're being exploited and used and directed it's easier and it's a lot harder to go through this world being conscious and aware of the constant Uh, violations that occur to you left right and center every time you go out into the world and be around people with these modern prefrontal cortex and their abstract realities that talk about politeness and manners and yet will speak about you behind your back you know it's like it's endless and it just makes me really not sad but just shocked and awed and i suddenly remember why i live in the middle of nowhere at the moment um why why we have moved into the middle of nowhere we're not we're moving out of the middle of nowhere soon but um so to speak to you from the other side you know you know the adele song hello from the other side so i'm just going to say hello from the other side what would it have been like for little warwick if he had gone through childhood and his 20s and his 30s and had that connection here to here and come into horses. So I've gone through my life, I know this might be unrelatable, but I've gone through my life always feeling my body and I feel that space here and here. I feel it too much Mm. and I've had to protect it, nurture it, care for it and place boundaries around it so that it's not mm, mistreated in the world around me, primarily mistreated by myself. And so... Um, that's been equally as difficult because it's also really hard to be a deeply feeling person. Um, I would walk into rehearsals in the ballet company where everyone was pissed off, but they're all pretending like they're not. But they're all pissed off because we're tired, we're overworked, we're underpaid, and there's some prick at the front of the room who's just been behaving really poorly. And um, I could feel nothing but anger. And I was happy before I walked into the studio and I was happy when I walked out. But in the rehearsal, I'd just be overcome with rage. And my boss actually brought it up to me in a season meeting once, like at the end of year, like summary, he would say, yeah, Lockie, you get like these moods and everyone in the room can feel them. And I said, yeah, I'm picking up on a radio station here. I said to him, this isn't me because I'm really happy in my life. Believe me, my life outside works great got my horse, I got my business, I got my man, I'm fine. And um, he's like, yeah, maybe you can work on it. I'm like, I need to figure out a way to protect myself from these uncontrollable energies because you pick up on them and it can be really exhausting. And I know I talk about horses all the time and this isn't necessarily a podcast about that, but it's the way I see a lot of horses show up a lot of the time is that they're picking up on all of this stuff and it's these unrecognized feelings it's not the feelings themselves it's the unrecognized it's the prefrontal cortex suppressing them that the horses horses are struggling with the most and that's a really uncomfortable thing to point out to people um and they've got to have a lot of trust in you to allow that to be pointed out not everyone's ready 
to have that pointed out, you know. But it's been equally as difficult to go through life feeling as it is unfeeling. Equally well, the, difficult. the thing with that, what I'm starting to discover now, things are thawing out, and I've always suspected this or suspected for quite a while, is the, is the unfeeling mm. was because there was too much Protection. feeling. So Protection. Yeah. And so now I've got to, now I've got to work through, you know, now I've got to start from the beginning and have, you know, like work through, uh, you know, sensations and emotions. And, and it's even interesting to identify them. Like, you know, like let's say I'm working with a therapist and they go, so, you know, we talk about something, they go, so what are you feeling? I'm like, I'm feeling something. They say, what? And I go, well, I don't know what it means. It's like, I, I'm not, I don't know what that's related to, <laughs> you know, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a new language for me. I have to have to kind of experience that feeling with a certain thing happening enough times to go, Oh, that's related uh, to, to that. It's like, you know, it's like learning. I don't know if you, did you learn language. German when you're in Germany? I did. And I learned to speak it quite well, actually. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very angry German. sounding language. It's a fantastic language to be pissed off in, let me just say. It's <laughs> so great. Oh, if I have to be angry, it's always German I prefer to be angry in. If I need to be confused, I'll try speaking in Polish. And if I want to be, like, chaotic, I'll try and speak Spanish. But, um, no, German's a great language to be angry in. I loved speaking German. And it was funny because when my mum started doing our family tree, we found a lot of relatives in Prussia, which is the Poland-Germany border. And it was funny that I kind of ended up there for a while. But it's so that's why I love um, Yak Pangsep's work because the whole, like, seven, uh, seven emotional systems and understanding them allows you to, to categorize this complex world into at least seven boxes and within those boxes you've got you know rage and high arousal which is like full-on rage attack rage and a low arousal is just mild frustration you know so there's high arousals and low arousals of these versions and of these emotions and so that's been really helpful for me to study that work as as much as I can because it's just given me the language and the tools to be able to organize what is typically a disorganized world but the more you, you dive into it, the more it's like a beautiful Swiss watch. It's, it's complex, but everything is connected and makes sense when you allow it to. And it's, its functionality is beyond the most beautiful creation technically that we could make. Emotions have this incredibly complex, sophisticated, logical, logical root in the brain and in the biological systems and when you understand them and allow them to come through you they're the most useful thing i can think of for example fear people say oh you shouldn't be shouldn't be a scared shouldn't be scared great all right so if you didn't feel scared you would get on you'd like walk off cliffs right fear literally keeps you alive I have conversations with clicker trainers all the time. You can't condition fear. It's like, well, fear is kind of essential because it keeps us alive. It helps us make healthy choices, positive choices. It helps us make informed decisions if you can make friends with it. You know, I the emotional systems are so useful. Once you dive into it and you really surrender to that, it's like this beautiful, like I said, like a Swiss watch. It's just like intricate and gorgeous and perfect and it all just sits with each other you're talking about fear i was reading well i listened to a lot of books but I listened to a book a while ago and they're talking about some guy had some sort of an accident 
and it damaged the part of his brain mm. that dealt with fear. That with fear, um, it must have been, you know, must have been, it might have been his amygdala that got some damage. But it was interesting because, yeah, he had no, he had no protective mechanisms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's a good thing to have mm-hmm. that, but you just can't mm-hmm. let it. You just mm. can't let it control you. Mm. The visual I use for the, the, the clients I work with, I say, right, you drive a car. Is fear driving your car or are you driving your car? Have you, have you ever driven with like our mother or our mother-in-law or a sister or a brother or something and they become a backseat driver, you know, telling you what to do all the time? I, I have driven with my wife. <laughs> oh, you're in the doghouse for that one. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, like you know, I drive with my mom too. And sometimes I have to say, thank you for sharing, but I got this. I'm driving the car. Thank you for sharing. It's a valid concern, but you can sit down and buckle up. Thank you so much. That's how I talk to my fear. Thank you for sharing. I'm listening to you because if you don't listen to it, it'll grab you by the throat and shake you and say, we are not safe right now. And it will be an exaggeration because it's a backlog of fear that you haven't addressed. It's like a dam that builds up. But if you allow it to just flow, then you can talk to it rationally. You can talk to your fear rationally and just be like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, let me, can I give a horse example? A few years ago, I was working at a trekking center, pretty rough and ready trekking center. And we had this one horse on the yard who um, was half psychotic she had come from a rescue background and they would leave her in a corral and feed her grain and she she didn't know how to stand still it took four people to get the guide on her because the guide would have to run off a wall jump into the saddle and you're off right she didn't stop spanish mare and the my employer came past one day and said oh lucky i've got a ride going out on wednesday i was thinking to put you on this horse um, to guide it. And I said, oh, I'd love to ride her. I said, what kind of ride is it? Are they all experienced riders? And she said, oh, it's a group of beginners. And that's when my fear just put their hand up and said, um, I, we, I have a problem. And I said to my fear, okay, what is it? They said, that sounds like a really bad idea. And I went, thank you for sharing. Let me do further research. And I asked my friend who rode this horse all the time on beginner rides. I said, what would you do? in this scenario. And they said, oh, it's fine. When you get to the switchbacks on the mountain, you just do circles in the corner until everyone else catches up at a walk. And Fia said, "Um, no, that's not happening. Thank you so much. And I just said, I'd love to ride this horse, but I'm an experienced ride only. Thank you, but no thank you, right? Now, if I was trying to cowboy up and I was trying to like prove I had no fear, I would have said, yeah, I can manage this horse. I can get on with it. You know, horse in a pelham doing circles in a corner. I would have put up with it all day. The horse would have had a bad time. I would have felt rattled. And as a deeply empathetic feeling person, I would have had to squash my fear into a box and pretend it wasn't there. And my fear would have been really pissed off with me for the rest of the day and longer. And so instead, I steered away from disaster by just rationally listening to it. So when people call emotions irrational or um, conjugate them, connect them with irrationality, I'm like, you have no emotional intelligence whatsoever if you're connecting emotions to irrationality. Emotions are the most rational systems in our bodies, I think, you know. Emotions is what allows us to recognize when we're in love and to say it to people. That's rational, you know. That's emotion. Love, care, nurturance, you know. 
You know, it was interesting you said something about <clears throat> fear back before you talked about the trekking horse. And I was thinking, because I said about, you know, you said about if you ever had a backseat driver, someone telling you how to drive sort of thing. And I said, yeah, I've driven with my wife. And you said, oh, you'll be in the doghouse for that one. That was not a giving your wife a hard time thing. Robin, most of her life has had a hard time giving up control. Okay. So wow. she doesn't like it when other people drive. Okay. Wow. Because she is not in control. But, wow. but, and you said something about practicing controlling fear. And I mentioned ice baths earlier on. So Robin's been, doing do the, Robin's been doing the ice baths for about eight months now. And her responses to things. So the ice bath, you are afraid to get in it. Your, your brain says no freaking way do not get in that thing do not get in that thing and when you get in there it says get the hell out and you get mm. to control that thing and robin ha and robin's very aware of this too she now makes decisions differently wow. about things because of her experience with the the ice bath and because she gets to to elect to put herself in a fearful place and then work through that fear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just like expanding a horse's window of tolerance or something rather, you know, you're going to, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to brush up against the places that concern him a little bit and then back off and then brush up against it. And you can expand that window of tolerance. But anyway, so I wasn't making a misogynistic thing about, Oh, the wife is always, oh, you know, I was joking. No, but in I case people joking. think, I in case people oh. think I was, Robin actually does not like it when other people drive. It's, she's not critical of the driving. She's not like, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. It's, it's, fear. it's fear. fear. And wow. usually when we drive somewhere, she drives because it's just easier. She, she would rather drive than, I mean, as long as we're not driving across country. If we're driving across country, we take turns. But like driving around town or if we're going to drive somewhere for a couple of hours, Robin would rather drive than have someone else drive because she likes to feel in control. It's not that the other person's a bad driver, um, but like I said, she's been doing these ice baths. Her decision-making about things in here, oh, in the last few months she's had to have some like minor medical procedure things Have uh, that in the past she would have had panic attacks over or really been mm. in a state over them. And after they were done, she's like, wow. That hmm. that didn't really bother me. So she's noticing more and more things that don't no bother her. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she's practiced them. And this is, you know, this is, we're getting back to horses now. This is like people say, oh, but how do I get my horse to, uh, uh, and it's like, it's not about the thing. Yeah, It's about how they feel about the thing and how easily, yep. how easily, you know, how well their nervous system works how easily they get upset and how easily they can let go of an aroused state, mm -hmm. you know, th things like that. And so, yeah, so the, the Robin has, uh, yeah, she's found a lot of uh, benefit in the ice baths. And it's funny enough, she didn't start doing the ice baths because of that. She started listening to some podcasts about ice baths and all the benefits of it. And Robin's really into being healthy and she was looking at it for the health benefits. She mm. wasn't aware of the, the mental resilience benefits, the endurance benefits, the personal discipline benefits, mm. all of those. She was doing it because it makes you healthier, 
But in order to right. get healthier, you've got to overcome the fact that your brain says, get the hell out of here, don't get in yeah. that ice bath, you know. And yeah. she yeah. she craves them now. Like she, every, she does them yeah. every day. She craves them. Like she, yeah, she, she is yeah, it, it's good. Is it like a similar thing for like people who do extreme sports, like base jumping and paragliding and stuff like that? Is it a similar, is it like an exhilaration rush or is it something else? Tell me. Um. I think that I think there's there's so many there's so many things so many things to it um you know I from what I've read a lot of times people that base jump and things like that they they don't they don't feel alive unless they're almost you know if they're almost Dead. If they're almost dying or they they they're on that Close. I could die doing this sort of thing that's when they kind of yeah. really feel alive um no I don't think it's it's that with her but i you know, like i said there's the personal discipline like you have got to do this thing and then there's the yeah then there's the arguing with yourself no i don't yes you do no i don't yes i do no i don't and then there's the getting in and controlling your breathing you know when you mm. get in that thing your breath you try to your breath tries to go this sharp inhale so when you get in the ice bath you get in you stand in on an in breath but you sit down on an exhale and your job is to Start exhaling as you sit down and get all the way in up to your chin while you're still exhaling and then control your next in-breath. Because if you do that short, sharp, then you're in the sympathetic and it's got you by the short and curlies, you know. Well, I'm back in uh, California in April, May, and uh, if you need Robin's to come. willing, I, I, I'll come over and you can oh, yeah. drop me in a bath of ice tanks. I'd, I'd like yeah. to try it with, with the master if I can. Uh, no, she's so at the podcast summit. Robin actually did a did a whole podcast on it, but at the podcast summit in San Antonio, she rented this human optimization lab at nighttime. Rented the whole place, so they have ice bars, they have uh, red light therapy, Swedish saunas, uh, infrared saunas, um, compression suits, massage chairs, and. We rented the whole space, but she just wanted it for the ice baths. And so Saturday night she took 12 people and Sunday night she took 12 people and, and led them through an ice bath. And there's something about – it must be like why firemen like rescuing people out of buildings or something rather. But when you talk someone through an ice bath and when they first get in, their face is terrified and you help them with their breathing and help them just stay in their breath – and after about mm, 35, 40 seconds, you see their faces change from fear to, holy shit, not only did I do it, not only can I do it, you know, not only can I overcome this thing, but, but yeah, it's very empowering. It's very empowering mm -hmm. for the people. And it's very, it's, there's something about, it's Robin's jam, like coaching people through the ice bath, it's her jam, she you know, we all have our our prickly parts, you know what I mean? You know, all of us have our prickly parts. When Robin coaches someone through an ice bath, I, t I tell her, you take off your prickly coat and you hang it up. She is pure empathy when she coaches someone through an ice bath. Her face softens and her voice is just like, she's she's the, the, the whole goodness that is Robin is when she coaches someone through an ice bath. It's so cool to watch. It. It's so cool to watch. I but love it. Yeah, we'll have to it. we'll have to have you come and, and um I'd love to. Have an ice bath. It's it's yeah. Yeah. It's, 
I mean, you say ice bath, but I've lived in a couple of houses over the last couple of years where the hot water system didn't really work. So we didn't really have a choice sometimes, <laughs> like in the winter time when the hot water system's not working, you know. But it's, it's not the fact you get in cold water. It's how you get in cold water that makes the, the difference. You can, well, no, it's not that. It's, but you can get in and hyperventilate and go, holy shit, holy shit, this is cold, this is cold, this is cold, this is cold, and get out. Okay, you've done two minutes in the cold, but what you didn't do was control yourself. You experienced mm. the cold. You know, it's, it's, all about the, it's all about like the mental preparation for it and then the, the mental state while you're in there. Um, mm. I, I know we normally do two-minute ice baths. Two minutes really all you need to do. The, the, the big benefit you get if it's after two minutes. But uh, just the other day I got in – We've got a we've got a water trough outside for the wintertime. Like we've got an ice bath, like a plug-in one in the in the garage that we normally do, but we've been doing them outside because it's been getting cold enough at night to where the water's, you know, anywhere between thirty-nine and forty-four degrees Fahrenheit. So you know, four to six degrees Celsius sort of thing. And I got in the other day. Oh, actually, New Year's Day is what it was yesterday. Yesterday, yeah, yesterday morning. Well, actually, New Year's Eve I got in, and I was in for five minutes. I stayed in for five minutes. Normally, at the end of two, like, okay, got to get out. But I was just in a in this place, uh, so I did it for five minutes, and then New Year's Day, I got in, and I was just in the zone. I stayed in there for ten minutes, and I've heard of people getting in there for ten minutes. I'm like, how the hell would you do that? That's crazy. But I got into this place to where I was just. It was it was actually kind of blissful. Bliss. Yes, it was. Mm. It was. It was very cool to reach that state in there. But yeah, we'll have transcendent, that. a transcendent yeah. experience. If I think about like transcendent experiences I've had, I had this one performance I did. We were in Lithuania and we were doing the best performance I've ever, best choreography I've ever danced in my life. It was by an American guy called William Forsythe, and it was a very complex, very very technically demanding piece probably the most technically demanding piece i've ever done in my life it was so technically demanding i was terrified of doing this piece for the premiere of this piece i actually had to have like a shot of something before i went on stage because i was so scared and some of the older polish dancers in the company were like elbowing me saying ah you're really like one of the club now if you're having a shot before you go on stage anyway (laughs) but i had to just to steady my nerves because i was so terrified of making a mistake because it was just an empty stage, just simple costume. Like every mistake was highly emphasized and the whole plea, uh, piece was like clockwork with very complex counts and all these groupings that were cross and mesh and very, very technically demanding choreography. And I remember in like in the finale in this big final sequence, we're all on the stage and I was in my head and trying to get in my body and I was going, going a mile a minute, a mile a minute, and so hard you feel your lunch rise in the back of your throat. You feel the bile in the back of your throat. It's just like I'm going to throw up. I have nothing left in my legs. There's no power, but I've still got another two minutes of this to keep going. And suddenly it was like I flatlined or something. I don't know. It was it. I sort of floated above my head and I suddenly saw the whole stage outside of myself and I saw those people there and I saw those colleagues here and I was like and now Ken will come on three four five six past me here 
Vadim will cross on count 11. And he, and it was it was just like, and I watched it all happen in slow motion while I kept going with all of this crazy choreography. And it was like, it was like a meditation, but a meditation not by stillness, but a meditation through extreme activity that my brain just kind of went zip and mm. went, this is enough. And you're now at this plateau where here you can be here for a long time. I don't know if it was like going over threshold because I wasn't flooded. It was just, it was, it was freedom and it was bliss. And I cried after that performance. I wept and everyone in that performance, we were all taking photos as a group afterwards because we all felt what had happened on that stage. And I knew at that time, I think I was 22, I knew that that was the best it was going to get for me as a dancer. And that was the best I was ever going to feel in my work. And I knew that there was nothing that could top that from there. And sort of I grieved it at the same time as I celebrated it. It was bizarre. And I'm, I would never have known that that could have happened until it had happened to you, you know. And there are so many things like that in life. You don't know it can happen until you just do it. Like there are some like technical elements of dance that I was really f- afraid of. And one day my, I would, you know, sort of dance around it or try and figure it out, try and intellectualize it. And one day my teacher just said, Lachlan, just do it. <laughs> just do it. And I went and I just did it and it was there. And then I had that skill. I don't know where it came from. My last performance I ever had on the stage I didn't care anymore. Well, I didn't care, but I didn't care. I kind of reached this place of total surrender and release. And pirouettes was something I'd always technically struggled with. I I could pull off enough to be professional, but I was never like extremely talented at them or good at them or they were never very reliable for me. And I always had to work hard at them and I always held tension in my body over them, especially doing them on stage. We had this one performance. It was my last show ever and I had to walk on stage. I had to do a pirouette in the middle of the stage and then pick up the principal dancer and put her in the air and then put her down again. And I was always doing sort of two and a half pirouettes for this sequence and I was pretty consistent at it. For my last show, I walked on stage and I'm like, this is the last time I have to do this shit. I'm over it. I'm out of here. This is it. I'm released. This is just for me now. And I went on stage and I started the pirouette and I went one, two, three, four, five, finished on balance and then controlled the next movement. It was the best pirouette I had ever done in my life. And it was in my last show. And I came off stage and my friends were like, oh, that was so good. That was so good. And I thought, ah, it's also clear to me now that I needed to be working in this place of release and surrender from the beginning. Mm. And if I'd, if I had, I've had challenges throughout my career until now, it was because I was in resistance to myself. I was in resistance to allowing it to come through me. And that is my constant challenge for myself is just let it come, let it come through you constantly in resistance to it i'm sometimes have been afraid to be good at something because if you're good at something then you're good at something then people have expectations of you but if you're not good at something no one has expectations of you and you can be private and you can be disregarded and and left alone you can be you can control your peace then if no one considers you 
But if you're good at something, people will place expectations and demands on you. And I've come up against that in this career now too. <sighs> to breathe and just allow it to come is a constant challenge for me and it doesn't come easily to me. But my last performance really was like a gift from the universe that said, take this into the next career. Take that mm. ability to work in release <laughs> with you into the next place. But until you experience that, you don't know what that is. You know, that exactly that you, you can, you could, you know, someone can tell you to, they're blue in the face. You got to release and let go of whatever. And, you know, and you just go, surrender. Know, You're right, like, right. yeah, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. You don't, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. you really, really don't even know what surrender feels, feels like. like. No, no. And the thing is, if you're trying to surrender, then you're already not right surrendering. Yes. You either do it or you do not. It's the school of Yoda. There is no yes. try. You either yes. do or do not. Yes. And so, um, and it's a weird thing because you have to be self-aware enough to do it, but not self-absorbed in doing it. And yeah. that's such a, such a hard line to tread. And I wish I was better at it. I really do. Because I am a profoundly boring and uninteresting person most days of the week. Um, and I wish I was better at it. Like I said, I wake up in the morning and I'm already having an existential experience and I wish I could surrender to that more sometimes, you know, and just allow it to come. But um, like the clinic tour I did in September was like a life-changing experience for me. And there were a few horses throughout and a few people too throughout the clinic that gave me an opportunity to do this thing that you and I are talking about. And I was so grateful for them, horses and humans, for that opportunity to be able to just go, okay, and just let it come. Let it come. Let it come. It's there. It's there. You've just got to let it come. And, um, yeah, it's a it's deeply private thing. And I've always struggled with sharing that deeply private part of myself with the world around me. I've always struggled with that. I can talk about my work forever and I can deliver a service. I love customer service. I really enjoy it. But to be deeply personal, that's new territory for me. And I'm experimenting with it, trying to talk a little bit more about more personal stuff with people and um uh it's 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 scary I'll, I'll i'll but again thank you for sharing i got this i'm driving you can buckle up thank you for sharing i understand <laughs> the concerns fear thank you so much thank you so much i appreciate the concerns no i won't tell that story yet no 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 sit down and then you know give it a go right and I guess that's how a lot of people feel to go on horses again. A lot of people feel that just to ride their horses. I mean, a lot of people talk about a lot of stuff in horse training, a lot of fancier stuff. A lot of people I meet would just like to be able to go for a Wednesday afternoon hack and not feel like they're going to die, you know? And we're make, and they're like, and I'm supposed to do like reverse round pen and jumbets and like all of this stuff. And I'm supposed to 
spend $300 on like agility equipment and tarps and I'm supposed to do all of this stuff, but I just want to go for a hack around the block with my mate and feel like I'm not going to die. And so for a lot of people, their version of this thing is just mounting on their horse and going for a walk. That for some people, that's a huge deal. And to do that and feel safe as they do that and to be emotionally connected to themselves and their horse as they do it. Because anyone can get on a horse disconnected and ride them. Anyone can do that and assume the positions and push them on. Anyone can do that. But it takes a lot of finesse and a lot of skill and a lot of personal growth to be a deeply sensitive and maybe cautious, fearful person of your well-being when you're riding and to get on your horse anyway. You see it a lot with women after pregnancy. They were fearless before pregnancy and then their whole physiological makeup is different after pregnancy. Not only is their pelvic floor different, their center of balance is different, but their relationship to self-preservation at a biological level, at a DNA level is out of control. And so that really perturbs a lot of people and that they have an identity crisis and some people never come back and they sell their horses. And so I had one client in New Hampshire who got on her off-the-track thoroughbred first time ever at our clinic and his last ride was his last race three years ago and she got on him in the clinic bitless and they just walked around her home arena civilized quiet friendly and she was just quietly weeping with joy and it just gives me shivers to think about it because to some people that say oh she's just walking oh who is she she can't walk her horse well shut up shut up those brutal people for this person that was such a big deal. And she's my hero, you know, my hero. Yeah. It's, it's, it's whatever your big deal is. Everybody's big deal is different and overcoming your big deal is a big deal. But just because somebody else's big deal is different or that, or or your big deal is easy for them. That's not for them to judge. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think we can all keep that in mind when, talking about others to others about their experience you know, yeah let's just not talk about you let's just not are. talk about others <laughs> yeah all that all that hey uh lucky we've got some questions here that you've chosen i've got to ask you before we get too far mm-hmm. along but i've got a question for you because you came and visited us in september and we were sitting there in the kitchen chatting for a while and i said oh, let's go see the horses and so we went out into <clears throat> a little pasture where i think Chance and Rupert might have been together out there, and mm. you. So Chance, Chance has Chance is you know he was my first, um, first foal that I was. I started with a completely consent based thing from the start, to where I didn't try to ever touch him uh, mm. unless he said I want you to touch me, sort of thing. And so he's got, he's got lots of draw and he's, you know, he's got lots of personality. He's a pretty cool little fella. And so you kind of went up to him and you were kind of, for the, everybody listening, Lockie's kind of facing Chance and he picks, Lockie picks up like he's got a little string attached to Chance's nose and like steps backwards and draws him around in a circle, which, which Chance will do. You know, it wasn't like Lockie was doing anything amazing there. But then you took your other hand, it was your left hand, and you put it above his wither, about two feet above his wither, and lifted it up, and you look like Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice or whatever that Disney movie was way back in the day. And 
Chance is walking around you, and when you pick up your hand up there, he kind of raises up and he's with us a little bit, like starts to strut a little bit. And then you let your hand back down, then you do it a second time, and he does the same thing. He kind of does this little strutty thing. And then the third time he did it, you put your hand up there and you raise your hand up. And Lockie's hand is spread wide open, like you were, you know, like spread your fingers as wide as you can. And he lifts, he lifts his hand up, and Chance's neck goes crack. Yeah. Um, crack, 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 crack. What were you doing with your hand? Nothing. You hadn't taught him, but I just did it from a different direction, I guess. I mean, it was really clear immediately. Chance locked on and he said, Hello. And I went, Well, hi. And he went, what do you got? And I went, a bit of this. And he went, yeah, I got that. I got strings, strings attached. I went, oh, you got strings attached. Well, I said, do you have a string attached here? He went, yep. And I went, cool. And I went, can you string attach here on your withers? And he went, yep. He went, oh, that felt good. Thanks for that. Oh, roll his shoulders out a little bit. And I went, oh, can we do that again? And he did. And then the third time I thought, mm, there's a bit of brace in your neck. Many quarter horses do have brace up there. So I pulled it a little bit harder, sort of like I was imagining his neck was like a, the image in my head was that his neck was like a bow and arrow and I was pulling back on the string because so I wanted him to lift out of his thoracic sling, bascule, get light. It's something I do with my horses at home. If they're connected enough, they will if they can. If they're not connected enough or if they can't, they won't. And because he's a consent-based horse, he can, and there's no obstacle there. So he just did. And so I went, I feel like there's a little bit of extra stickiness there. So I pulled it a little bit harder, and he pulled all the way and went, went, cracked his neck like you would crack your, your knuckles. There's nothing remarkable about it, Warwick. It was, it's no different than you and I sitting here having a conversation with each other. The only difference is that's a horse fully in his body, and I'm a human fully in my body too. And so without any practice, you can step in and have these really authentic movement-based conversations with a horse that can be really detailed and complex and actually constitute beautiful training as well without practice. You know, I did a lot of contact improvisation when I was a dancer. I did whole performances that were fully improvised and I loved it. You just move how you feel. And that's how I see horse training. It's like a contact improvisation. I go here and they ameliorate and accommodate and I might draw and pull and maybe they draw or step back or pull against or come in. And so you just offer a movement and you see what they offer back and then you offer something. back. It's like tennis. You just volley with each other. And if the horse is connected, consent-based, no fear, likes people and kind of picks up on you and locks in on you, it's very easy to do. But the whole journey to get to that place is not necessarily easy for most people. But you don't have to be a former dancer to get there. I've seen um, all kinds of people get to this sort of place with their horses too. But that was really fun. That was a fun moment. It was very cool. To, it was very cool to see, and I'm thinking, what the freaking hell did he just do? <laughs> I just cracked his neck. You we did. just had like a little contact improvisation moment. without without any contact. Without any contact, and there was no tack on him either. But he, you have done such a nice job. Obviously, it's clear the horse is emphatically clear that he just feels so good in himself that he can offer that 
to a perfect stranger, only a horse whose cup overfloweth with well-being can offer that to a perfect stranger. And Yak Pank said he talks about character, you know, what are you born with? And it's interesting because you were talking about Bodhi, I think even recently online, how he was naturally a little bit more suspicious. And the best science we've got tells us, like, what constitutes a character? What constitutes a personality? It's 50-50. 50% of your biological, emotional strata you're born with and 50% is the sum total of your experiences. So there are certain things with certain horses that will never change because they were born that way. And you can, with some of experiences, improve it, but they're not born these, like, empty vessels that, all of their um, behaviours are based on their their conditioning, as operant conditioning would have it say. That's That's been quite disproven. So, you know, what was his name? Chase? Chance? Chance. 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 Yeah, he's probably got a really awesome natural disposition and um, really great subsequent experiences in his life that he can offer that to a perfect stranger. Well, you know, it's funny. Bodhi, you know, was very, very suspicious early on like didn't want to have anything to do with people and any anything really like other objects you know wasn't curious like wanted to go sniff things he kind of wanted to run away from things and uh you know it's we've had quite a bit of rain here and it's turned into a bit of a mud hole and we're going to actually move these horses some of these horses somewhere else soon and so Bodhi is still on his mother he's nine months old and he's very lightly handled but we're going to have to get him in a horse trailer to go somewhere <clears throat> here probably in a couple of weeks and so yesterday I um, I borrowed a friend's stock trailer and I put Bella, so as the mother, Bodie, the young one, and then uh, Rupert, who's a brother, half-brother, who's just turned two, I guess, in the round pen. And I just backed that trailer up to the round pen and opened the gate, you know. And I thought, oh, well, I've Rupert's been in a trailer once and all I did was I'd spent some time leading him up to the back of the trailer and letting him graze grass at the back of the trailer, and then one day I walked up there and he just climbed in. I didn't do any trailer loading with him. So I put a halter on Rupert and thought, I, want, I said, I wonder how he's going to approach the trailer now, and I just walked up to it and he just climbed in. I've never asked him to get in. He climbed in. Oh, sorry, no, before that, I threw some hay in the front of it. No, I did lead, mm. sorry, I did lead Rupert in. So I led Rupert in and I pulled the halter off and just left him in there and stepped out. And I went to do something and I came back and Bodhi was in the trailer with him. He's never been, he's never stepped over anything on the, he's never had an obstacle to step on on the ground. He's, I've never done anything like that. But I think that consent-based stuff brings out their curiosity. You know, yeah. there's no fear of things. Uh, and he wasn't, he was, you know, he was a, he was a more fearful horse to start with, but I think because I didn't, I did didn't do anything to him to cause any fear that I think that fear yeah. has resolved itself. Yeah. He's become a bit more confident and curious now. Yeah. And like uh, emotional systems such as curiosity or seeking and play, they are resource heavy systems. They require a lot of physical, biological resources for them to happen. They spend a lot of energy and take up a lot of brain space and the brain won't, the nervous system and the brain won't let you experience them unless you're completely safe. Mm. And this is why, like, force-based training, it's just, just from a common sense perspective, it just doesn't make sense because it creates so many problems later. It doesn't 
make the horse safer if the horse is afraid of you. Because once you start that fear and intimidation path, you make a rod for your own back and you've got to go all in on it. Otherwise, you can't be half in, half out on it because then you've got a horse that's uh, afraid of you enough most of the time, but remembering you enough to wait for their opportunity. And ask me how I know that because I've <laughs> seen it happen too many times, yes. you know. And so, like, once you've got these horses and you just be nice to them. I mean, it's really not complicated. I mean, be nice to them. You don't have to take shit from them either, but just be nice to them and be fair to them. And then they will release to you these higher functioning biological resources that make training more pleasant, easier, less combative you know it just makes sense i mean i think it makes sense but again human brain's pretty good i think they're coming up with things that sort of don't make sense it's sort of how our brains build really yes um i gotta get to these questions because we're gonna run out of time here um okay we're gonna we're gonna do like rapid fire questions because these are the sorts of questions that Ugh. you could you could take half an hour to answer each one but we're gonna do okay, rapid rapid I'll fire try. questions Ready? I'll try. First question is, if you could spread a message across the world, one that people would listen to, what would it be? Or your favorite quote, or both. Uh, 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 your emotions are not holding you back. Your thoughts, your abstract thoughts are. Period. Boom. That's a good one. Uh, what's the worst, most worthwhile thing you put your time into? Something that's changed the course of your life? Uh, my relationship with my partner, Nikki. Period. Boom. Changed, changed course of my life. Let's, can we elaborate on that one? Yeah. I fell in love um, in 2017 with the Polish guy. And um, at the same time, I just bought my first horse. And he, um, I was still dancing at the time. And being loved by someone like that gave me the power to walk into an abusive environment and say, you know what? I don't have to put up with this anymore because someone at home loves me. Mm. And so that gave me the confidence to say, I think I can step away from this. I realized I had a toxic relationship to my dance career. So it gave me the power to step out of it. And that's changed the course of my life. Also, my relationship with my, my first horse, Sanson, completely altered every aspect of my life. He's, he's a whole podcast on his own. But um, it was, uh, you know, finding that person you want to go through life with has really steered me in a, in a totally new direction. I never thought I would go. So I'm really grateful for that. Very good. Okay. So the next couple of questions have to do with your occupation. Um, mm. So before we do that, we have to, we have to um, quantify what your occupation is. Right. So I train horses I'm a personal coach for equestrians with services online for anyone in the world. I have online courses, video libraries. I do clinics. Um, so it's the horse profession. Yeah. I was, I was, when when right. you chose these questions, I was wondering if it was dance profession or horse profession. That's really no, I no, 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 no. I I haven't been around dance for quite a while. Okay, now, so, so what ad my job. what advice would you give for people about to enter your occupation? Don't just learn your professional skill set, but learn how to run a business as well. It's very much within your scope of uh, responsibility to learn how to be good at running a business, not just having a good skill set and then throwing your hands up in the air and waiting to have work. If you want to have work, learn how to run a business as well and to provide a service. That's really important. And the next one is what's the worst advice given in your profession? Hmm. 
leave your emotions at the gate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what do you do? Where do you go to recharge your batteries or where do you find the motivation or inspiration for what you do? Recharge my batteries. I watch really stupid, trashy reality TV. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all high and cerebral and I go into these diatribes. When I need to switch off, I will watch the worst, most obscure reality TV you can imagine. And that's where you'll find me on my day off, probably after feeding the horses in my pajamas and my Crocs. I'll be sitting somewhere watching really bad reality TV. Just from an anthropological perspective, Warwick, it's a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating thing, you know. Uh, to find inspiration, I go to my horses and I go to my clients. They inspire me. Very cool. In the past five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Exhausting myself as and wearing that as a badge of honor Mm. i've become better at that and i'm still in process of that it's a demon i have to fight with every day to learn how to rest it takes true self-discipline to be able to rest and stop because anyone can work themselves to the bone especially if they're passionate disciplined qualified and good at something anyone can just go 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 until they drop but it takes true self-discipline and true self-care to learn how to rest and to structure your time so that you can rest during the pandemic i didn't have that luxury because we were destitute but um the last five years i've been learning that i'm on route stay tuned (laughs) stay tuned stay Uh, tuned we'll see how we go and what's your relationship like with fear i think we've discussed that pretty well in the in the Mm. conversation today but i love fear fear is so important I, have a, I hold hands with fear and I let it talk to me. It's that um, advisor with a clipboard in my rear view mirror that just sort of says, um, I've got this problem and this problem and this problem. And I listen, I say, thank you. And I say, you can sit down now. I'm going to drive this forward. Thank you for sharing. That's my relationship to fear. And what qualities do you admire in a person? Kindness and honesty. I saw something recently like kindness without honesty is manipulation and honesty without kindness is brutality. You've got to have both at the same time. What was the last one? um, Kindness without honesty is manipulation. Yeah, got that one. And honesty, honesty without kindness is brutality. Ah, very good, yes. So kindness and honesty at the same time. Perfect. That's awesome. Well, Lockie, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to know you a bit more oh, and uh, having a chat with you. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy and grateful that you had me here. Yeah, no, it was, it was fun. So how do people find out more about uh, Lockie Phillips? Go to my website, emotionalhorsemanship.com. You can find me under the same title on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I'm not on TikTok. Don't get it. Do not even try looking for me on Twitter. I've also got a Patreon, which has a video library under Emotional Whisper Tip as well. Perfect. Very cool. And we'll put those in the in the show notes too, so if anybody needs to see those. So, yeah, Lucky, thank you once again for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Warwick. You have a great day. I shall. Uh, You guys at home, thanks for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode 
of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.